Help us, God, as we have been attentive to one another. And to you, through song and prayer, to be attentive to you through your word, through the scriptures, through your spirit. Give us hearts that are good, soil to receive your word, plant within us things that will grow and bring you joy and bring you glory and that will bless your people. I pray and ask that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words in any way deviate from your word, may they be quickly forgotten. We pray in Christ the Lord. Amen. So if you're new with us this morning, welcome. We're glad you're here. Over the last three months, we've been studying together a book in the Bible known as Colossians. Colossians was originally not a book, but a letter written by a guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul, to a young church, not a church that he had planted, but that a co-worker of his had planted in the city of Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey today. You may remember about Paul that he was first known in the Scriptures as Saul, and he was an angry man who was out to get Christians, uh, persecuted them, uh, oversaw their murder sometimes. He was on his way to a city called Damascus when he was struck down by a loud voice and a bright light, and uh, he was on his way to arrest uh, people who were a part of this new movement that later became known as Christianity to put them in jail along the way he himself is arrested by a great light and by the grace of God. Him, a great sinner, becomes one who is the greatest proponent in the first century and maybe over the last 20 centuries of the grace and the power and the love and the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. In the first and second chapters of his letter to Colossians, Paul, speaking to the young church in Colossae, uh, which had been infiltrated and was becoming influenced by several different kinds of outsiders, one of whom were highly religious, dogmatic people. Another group were uh, Greek philosophers, uh, people influenced by Greek philosophy. And Paul writes out of compassion and care and pastoral love to try to correct them uh, in some of the falsehoods into which they were slipping. He talked with them about who Jesus really was, what Jesus was about, how Jesus related to God, how Jesus was an embodied God, and about the things that God had done and was doing through Jesus, reconciling not only them but the entire world to God, back to God himself, forgiving their sins, giving them new and abundant life, what the scriptures call eternal life. And in his letter, Paul described a life positively affected by Jesus that many of us have tasted, which Paul calls being in Christ. And that's available to all of us as we, as we die with Christ and as we are raised to new life. And this is not so much a physical or biological action, but a spiritual one and a, uh, an action of the will being raised to new life, not in a life to come up in heaven somewhere, but in this life available to each of us today, here and now. And this new life, as Paul spoke about it and the scriptures talk about it, it changes everything, including one's relationships and all of our relationships. That is its intention. And part of this transformation, as we saw earlier in Colossians, happens when we put to death 
the things that inhibit this life, that keep us from God, what Paul elsewhere calls the sin that so easily entangles. And in Colossians, he mentions among those anger, malice, greed, covetousness, wanting other people's things, as Gladys spoke about with the kids, uh, immorality, filthy talk, and so on. And Paul says that we are to consciously, actively, not put these things on the shelf or in the closet, but put them to death once and for all as best we can in our lives. Each day, by the power of the Spirit in us and as children of God, we are also holy and dearly loved people. We are to put on, Paul says next, put on, after we have put things off and put them to death, put on or clothe ourselves in Christ and in the things of Christ. And he mentions here compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with each other, forgiving one another. And then Paul says over all of these virtues, put on the chief among them, which is love, which binds them all together into a neat package and which binds us all together in perfect unity. And then as a sort of umbrella statement or command that Paul certainly meant to apply to the nine verses that follow, two of which we started on last week, Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In other words, for example, in all of your relationships, both in word and deed, live in the name of the Lord Jesus. And we talked two weeks ago and last week in recap about what it meant and what it means to do this, to live all of life in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus. It means to speak, act, and live in the way of Jesus and in the character of Jesus and in the integrity of Jesus and the example of Jesus and the power given to us in Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. And then step by step, Paul goes through all of the primary relationships in a first century household because we live out our faith and, our, and Christ in us, not isolated in a pew or alone on Sunday morning or only in a prayer closet or when riding a trek or driving a car, though we can certainly live out our faith in those places and activities, but we largely live out our faith in and through the various relationships of our lives with other people. There was a, a time in church history where people gravitated to monasteries. They gravitated toward living alone. St. Anthony in the earliest centuries was the greatest example of that in the early church. And people thought to be truly spiritual, to be truly faithful, to really please God, I have to get alone with God, be cloistered away even by myself, even for years at a time. And it wasn't for centuries later before uh, Christians began, began to understand in mass that the way we live out our faith, the way we practice our faith, is really in community. Spend time alone in that prayer closet, sure. But God calls us and wants to redeem all of our relationships. We may want to think or believe or live as if our faith can be lived out in Bible study alone or journaling or fasting, which are all good and beneficial spiritual disciplines and practices. We may want to believe or think or live as if our faith can only be lived in these ways, 
because we can do these things, because we are capable in these areas, because we can master these things. But in the end, the Christian life is lived out in community and in the world and through our interactions and our relationships with other people, with our neighbors, with strangers, with enemies, with the people around us, the people we work with, and maybe most importantly and poignantly, with the people in our immediate midst, our families, our households. And as I described last Sunday morning, the household in the first century was far more than it is today. Uh, It was the basic building block of society and of culture and of communities. People did not live alone. People did not live only as couples, as two people. People did not ordinarily even live as nuclear families. A common household in first century Colossae, for example, was made up of a husband and a wife and maybe one of their siblings or more and their children and maybe some cousins and aunts and grandparents and orphans and renters and foster kids and servants and slaves. All of these people would have lived together and the head of the household would have been responsible for everyone's well-being and provision and health. And he would have been husband and father and maybe also grandfather and uncle and employer and benefactor and maybe even master to others in the household. Someone had to be in charge. In that context, the head of the household was in charge. Having not only broad power and authority given to him by the state and the culture, but also broad responsibility for those under his roof. And last Sunday morning we read and talked about verses 19 and 20 in chapters 3 of Colossians where Paul addresses first the relationship between husbands and wives. And while we don't have time, I don't have time to recap any more than I have that somewhat nuanced message. Those verses were our memory verses for last week, so we're going to say them in practice again together this morning. And one of the interesting principles of speaking in front of people is you absolutely, or I absolutely, my mind and my memory go completely blank. So we're going to try this anyway, though. Last week's memory verse, I think it's up on the screen. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right, one more time. Ready? Wives, submit to yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Very good, without the notes. Digging into those verses for me was good, but it was also challenging. I don't know about for you, if you weren't here last Sunday morning, you can pick it up on the podcast or the website. And now, if last week's verses were hard in some ways, the verses in front of us next in Colossians are in some ways even harder, at least for me. Listen closely as I read, follow along visually. Listen closely, this is the word of God. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And Paul writes, fathers, do not provoke your children or they will become discouraged. And as with the verses we read last Sunday, there are several things that can be said and that must be understood contextually. Context is really important with these verses. First, Paul is using a template 
from the first century culture that scholars have called a house table in which are described all of the key relationships in a household and what those relationships are to look like, how those people are to relate to each other, how they were to function together, what the cultural mores were of that time and place, and the relationship between parents and children was not only common in the household, but also critical. And whether one has children in one's household right now, or whether one ever has or ever will have children or not, there are good and important things in this passage for all of us to consider, for all of us to understand, for all of us even to put into practice. Second, what is initially important to notice is that Paul addresses children at all, and that he addresses them first. In contrast to the norms of the day in which children had no rights at all, a father could literally treat his children however he wanted. He could sell them into slavery. He could even, we see in some ancient texts, murder his children and not be accountable for that. It was not uncommon, it was common for a husband or a father to deal with his children harshly. And whether one has children or not, we must understand this context. Thinking mostly but by no means exclusively, children that Paul is writing about thinking of when he writes children are people about age 20 and younger. But it really applies to everyone. But he's really thinking to teenagers and children younger than that. But he regards them as ethically responsible individuals with the freedom to think and to act on their own, on their own behalf. In the new community immersed in Christ, children had dignity, worth, and value, unlike the general view of children at that time. And so Paul begins by addressing them, by acknowledging them, by giving them value, by raising them up. His beginning of children obey is not intended to single in on them, to focus in on them the most. He comes up with that next. And yet Paul tells children in crystal clear terms, obey your parents. Obey your parents. And this is similar but different to uh, what Gladys talked about with the children, the fifth of the Big Ten Commandments that reads, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. It's one thing to show someone honor or respect or high regard. To obey what another person says, however, is to go a step further and to obey strictly and in everything. Would have been the norm in Paul's word, but two nuances shape Paul's specific direction to the children. First, Paul dignifies children by giving them an opportunity to please the Lord. The thinking wasn't then that a child could please the Lord. He gives them an opportunity to please the Lord. He invites them into relationship with the Lord. The relationship with the Lord doesn't belong only to the head of the household, but he invites them into that by obeying their parents, their fathers and their mothers, who in some ways, as we see in the Old Testament, represent the Lord to them at, in their lives and at that stage of their lives. Second, the assumption is that those who are reading Paul's letter, including the heads of households, were in Christ. That is the assumption. Everything that follows is predicated on that. They had encountered the grace and the power of God in Jesus, and so they were different. And inasmuch as that was the case, children who obeyed their parents were obeying God. If a child's parents were not themselves obeying God and walking in Jesus' steps, then all bets were off. 
But whereas that Paul writes at this point in Colossians, what he writes is predicated on the assumption that the fathers as well, that both parents are in Christ, then children are called to do everything, to obey in every way what their parents say. And with such, God would be well pleased. And Paul very well could have left this matter there and gone on to the next thing, the next relationship, saying nothing to parents. That would have been normal in a house table of that day. After all, what is most important for order is children to obey their parents. We all know that. But in the sovereign wisdom and constant goodness of God and his kingdom of love, there is more. There is something for parents and specifically here and in Paul's context for the heads of households who were men, who were fathers, who were husbands and had absolute and unquestioned authority and power. There is something for them. Verse 21, fathers, 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 you do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Various English translations are all valid in this in saying, fathers, do not provoke your children. Do not embitter your children. Do not exasperate your children. Do not aggravate your children. And as a parent, that's not always easy to do, for me at least, and how that relationship works. As the head of the household had the right to be harsh in that time, harsh with his wife, harsh with his children, harsh to anyone he wanted in his household and under his authority, Paul proclaims, do not do it. He tells fathers, husbands, men, do not be this way. Why or why not? Certainly because Paul doesn't want to see children pushed away from the gospel and from Christ and his church by people who were overly harsh, which has happened gazillions of times in church history. Even more foundational than that, however, was the new reality that had come upon the people who were in Christ, defined by compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Imagine those qualities or those virtues as preeminent in the life of a father, bearing with each of his children and forgiving each of them over and over and covering all of that relationship with love, which would bind them together in unity. This is what Paul has in mind. Though heads of households had the right to do whatever they wanted or treat people however they liked, a new reality had consumed them in Jesus now treating others as God had treated them in Christ Jesus. And so the heads of households who were not accustomed to being told how to run their households, Paul directs them, do not provoke your children, or they will become discouraged, they will lose heart, they will become disheartened. And that is a difficult balance to maintain. Good and faithful parents actively guide direct and correct their children. That's what good and faithful parents do. We read in the Proverbs that parents who love their children discipline their children. And in the book of Hebrews, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so how does a parent find that sweet spot in ideal balance when someone figures it out or masters that? Please let me know. In my experience, at least, parenting looked easy from the outside, but it's actually quite difficult. It looks easy at first or from the sidelines, but it turns out to be really hard. 
P.J. O'Rourke has rightly observed, everyone knows how to raise children, except the people who have them. (laughs) Going back a couple of centuries, John Wilmot famously wrote, before I got married, I had six theories about raising children. Now I have six children and no theories at all. Parenting is often more difficult than it appears ahead of time and maybe especially during one's children's teenage years and three quarters, 75% of my kids are in that phase now. Nora Ephraim has written, when your children are teenagers, it's important to have a dog so that someone in the house is happy to see you when you get home. (laughs) Can anyone relate? Just be love you though. I ran across an essay uh, this week when I was digging around uh, among and in my stuff of uh, kind of an essay called Lessons or How to Prepare uh, for Becoming a Parent that I must have set aside 17 or 18 years ago when Karen and I were getting ready to have our first child. How to Prepare for Becoming a Parent and it offers 15 different lessons on subjects as diverse as diapers, grocery shopping, media, and multitasking. I thought I'd share just a few of those with you this morning, some of the shorter ones. Lesson lesson one, knowledge. Before you finally go ahead and have children, find a couple who are already your parents and criticize them about their methods of discipline, their lack of patience, their appallingly low tolerance levels, and they're allowing their children to run wild. Suggest ways in which they might improve their children's breastfeeding, sleeping habits, toilet training, table manners, and overall private and public behavior. And enjoy doing this because it will be the last time in your life you will have all the answers. Lesson three, bedtimes. To discover how the nights will feel. Walk around your living room from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. carrying a wet bag weighing approximately 8 to 12 pounds with a radio turned or tuned to static or some other unpleasant sound playing loudly. At 10 p.m., put the bag down, set the alarm for the night, and go to sleep. Get up at midnight and walk around the living room again with that bag until about 1 a.m. Set the alarm for 3 a.m. then. As you can't get back to sleep, get up at 2 a.m. and make yourself a drink. Go to bed then at 2.45. Get up at 3 a.m. when the alarm goes off. Sing songs in the dark until 4 a.m. Then get up at 6 a.m., make breakfast, keep doing all of this for a year, and look cheerful. The one on lesson seven on feeding is uh, humorous and complicated, but it has to do with trying to uh, get Cheerios, wet, soggy Cheerios, into uh, a very small moving target hole while acting like an airplane, and then in the end, throw all of the Cheerios up on the floor, and the ones that end up on your lap uh, represent the process of feeding. Transportation number 10. Forget your dream of a B&W and instead buy a minivan, but don't think it will ever again be spotless and shiny like the day you bought it. Families don't own cars like that. Instead, buy a chocolate ice cream cone, buy a chocolate ice cream cone, and put it in the glove compartment. (laughs) Leave it there. Next, get a quarter and stick it in the CD player. Next, take a family-sized package of chocolate chip cookies, mash them into the back seat. And finally, run a garden rake along both sides of the car. Now you are ready for transportation and children. (laughs) Number 11 is interesting. It's about language. Make a recording of Fran Drescher. Do you remember her? (laughs) From from the nanny? Uh, Make a... 
make a recording of Fran Jesser repeatedly, uh, including with an occasional crescendo to supersonic levels, uh, saying, mommy, mommy, mommy. There should be no more than a four-second delay between mommies. And then uh, put that recording in your car and listen to it whenever you're driving uh, for a full year. And then and only then are you ready to take a toddler on a road trip. Uh, lesson 14, I'll stop there. Grocery shopping. Go to the local grocery store. Take with you the closest thing you can find to a preschool child. A full-grown goat will work well. <laughs> if you intend to have more than one child, take more than one goat. While at the grocery store, buy your week's groceries without letting the goats get out of your sight. Pay for everything the goat eats or destroys. Until you have accomplished this several times, do not even contemplate having children. Irma Bombeck, some of us remember her. She wrote, when my kids become wild and unruly, I use a nice, safe playpen. When they have calmed down, I climb out of it. <laughs> we had two playpens, uh, one, one for me and one for Karen. At the same time, the privilege of parenting is a high and unique calling. I think it was Henry Nouwen who said that God allows some of us to be parents in order to shape us, make us into the person he intended us to be. And that's not always an easy journey. Children, obey your parents in everything. This command assumes that parents will not demand anything inappropriate from their children, this command assumes that parents always have the best interests of their children in mind as the parables and teachings of Jesus revealed. Parents, do not provoke your children or they will become discouraged. Discipline your children, of course. We've all been witnesses of children who have not been appropriately or lovingly disciplined by their parents and seen the disasters that result because of that. Parents, discipline your children. And those of you who are covenant community parents, who have taken vows at baptisms of children to help and support and pray along with and be with the raising of other people's children along the journey, join in this discipline, inter disciplining enterprise in Christ when necessary and when helpful, on campus, off campus, but always in love. But Paul, who never mentions having children of his own, was nevertheless most concerned about children becoming discouraged, about children being so bowed down that they became broken. He knew the dangers of anyone being subject to another person who had absolute power. Thus, Paul's concern was not that children would grow up to disgrace their father by their disobedience, but that the father would hinder the nurture of his children through discipline at all costs. Constant criticism and reprimand can be as destructive as none can be as destructive as none at all and can destroy a child's sense of self-worth. Negative behavior by children calls attention to itself. And so it's easy for people like me to focus on the negative. But parents must not forget, they must pay attention to when their children do obey and when their children do do right and when their children do do good and praise them for such. For most parents, it takes more effort to do that praising and affirming than it does to call out their children's lesser or bad behavior. 
But the positive affirmation is far more important. Fathers, do not embitter your children. Mothers, do not embitter your children. Paul's aim in what he says in these two verses and in the two before and the several that, were, that will follow were not to upend the social fabric, norms, mores, rubrics of his day. The way of Jesus was already being maligned by those in places of power. The church didn't need any more negative news. And yet, by the leading of the Holy Spirit, Paul still speaks into and sought to redeem people's most basic relationships in the Lord for the well-being and the blessing of all. I appreciate the wisdom of an old guy named J.C. Ryle. He said, love is the one great secret of successful training of children. Anger and harshness may frighten them, but they will not persuade the child that you are right. And if the child often sees you angry and harsh, you will soon cease to have that child's respect. And then in the words of Jenny Monchamp on the cover of our bulletins this morning, show your children God's love by loving them and others as Christ loves you. Be quick to forgive. Don't hold a grudge. Look for what's best and speak gently into the areas of their lives that need growth. The way of Jesus is the way of love. And while in Christ, every member of a household is equally a recipient of God's grace and part of God's family, there have they have necessarily different roles and responsibilities according to what the scriptures call creation and according to their relationships at different times in their lives. The controlling ethic of the gospel, though, is not the wielding of power over others, but rather voluntary submission to others. The controlling ethic of the gospel is that the greatest should become the servant of all, that the one with the, that the greatest shall be servant of all and have a towel in his or her hands along with a basin. That she or he will be the one who changes diapers and that blesses others. Children, obey your parents in the Lord as this pleases the Lord. Parents, as much as you are able, be the kind of parents, be the kind of people in the Lord who are easy to obey, who are a delight to obey. We serve our children, though we are older, though we have more power. We serve our children. Even when our children do not obey us, Paul says, do not provoke, do not embitter, do not exasperate. And over all of these things, put on love, which will hold the household together, which will hold those individual relationships together, which will hold the family together, which will hold the church together. May this be so. Let's pray. Forgive God our uh, bumbling around. Forgive our lack of reliance on you. Forgive our ignoring your words and your way at times, especially in parenting, but in many of our relationships, maybe all of our relationships. Forgive our pride. Humble us. Put on for us when we aren't able to put on for ourselves. The clothing of Christ, the way of Christ, the heart of Christ compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. 
and the desire and the ability and the power to forgive. We ask these things with hope. We ask these things with confidence. We ask these things in the name and in the way of Christ the Lord who is our King. Amen.